Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. When we think of the literature written by the soldiers of the First World War, Canadians will, of course, remember Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, the author of In Flanders Field. He wrote that poem in 1915 in remembrance of a lost friend. Dr. McRae was moved by the poppies that grew so pretty on land scorched by the violence of war. McRae was not the only poet to come out of the trenches. There were other Canadian poets. They did not become famous like Wilfred Owen or Siegfried Sassoon or Rupert Brooke, but they left a small but moving body of work in the English language, and their lives need to be rediscovered. My guest today is Joy Porter, and she's done just that with a study of Frank Pruitt, a man whose life could, in the right hands, be movie-worthy. He was born on a farm in Kenilworth, Ontario in 1893 and died in Scotland in 1962 at the age of 69. Between those dates, he lived many extraordinary lives. Joy Porter's book is entitled Trauma, Primitivism, and the First World War, The Making of Frank Pruitt. It is published by Bloomsbury Press. Joy Porter is the principal investigator within the Treated Space Research Group and professor of Indigenous and Environmental History at the University of Hull. We reached her at her office in Hull on the northeast coast of England. Joy Porter, welcome to the podcast of the Champlain Society. Thank you, Patrice. I'm thrilled to be here. Joy, you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. What took place on April 18th, 1918? Well, in many ways, we're moving far from the McRae poem, really. We're moving to a Canadian poet who wrote counterblasts to McRae's In Flanders Fields. And he saw things differently. And of course, McRae dies in 1918. Pruitt lives on. And he experiences profound shell shock. April 1918, he's already previously been blown off a horse and sustains profound back pain. But he's still there, he's still in France, still fighting. And in April, he is blown up and buried alive. Now, Freud said that being buried alive was uh, on a emotional, mental level, akin to having all your repression, the repression that allows us to cope day to day, stripped from you. And Pruitt's buried alive, you know, it's, it's a horrendous physical, mental experience. He struggles to get out, his, his limbs are crushed, his lungs are crushed, he's clawing to, to get out of there, you know, his tongue turns blue. The whole experience of being buried alive, it's, it's profoundly traumatic. And when he gets to the surface, his whole understanding of being alive, of reality, of, of how he relates, he calls himself a cosmic speck, his whole concept of, of being human completely changes and he's profoundly shell-shocked. It's an enormous turning point in his life. Who was Frank Pruitt until that fateful day? Who, who was this man? He's an Ontario middle-class uh, farm boy, and he grows up in a Protestant fire and brimstone farming context, uh, very Christian, uh, with a grandfather that uh, intones the Bible every morning. And really, he doesn't experience a lot of love growing up. The love he experiences from a Bernardo's boy called Ben, who's a helper on the farm. 
but he grows up with a profound affinity to the land, and he joins up believing that he wants to see Canada assert itself on the world stage. And uh, really, he rejects that whole religious Christian upbringing uh, after he is blown up and experiences combat. Uh, but he's also, he changes his relationship to Canada as a nation, which is interesting too. But he goes, I mean, again, just to, to make sure we, we, we follow his story. So he, he grows up in Ontario. He goes to school. He goes to the U, U of T, doesn't he? University, University of Toronto. He does. He does indeed. Yeah. Like McRae, he was also a U of T alumna. And he enlists in the Canadian Army, but will somehow be moved to the British Expeditionary Force uh, in 1915, if I read you correctly. Um, is he happy in the Army until that point? Well, I think he's chuffed that he is promoted, um, you know, because he has this degree background and the, the British really look to Canada for manpower and uh, being promoted upwards within the British force was a positive move for him uh, to, to attain the officer class. And, uh, you know, he's there as all Canadians were as part of the empire to fulfill British needs primarily for boots on the ground, as it were. He's 25 years old when he crawls himself out of that hole and he starts a new life. That's why I'm calling this podcast The Many Lives of Frank Pruitt. What happens to him when they, when they find him out of his hole? He's messed up, messed, messed up. He has all the physical characteristics of shell shock, the shaking, uh, but mentally he is, is really disturbed. He perceives the dead to be there, the veil between the living and the dead has gone, and it, he never really gets it back. He perceives the dead around him. Uh, he writes poems about being hag-written by the dead. He he sees death everywhere. And that thing that uh, PTSD and shell shock do to you, where you lose your grasp of time, and the past can be suddenly with you in an emotional sense, he has that really badly. And he, you know, in, in a physical sense, he'll often have to sit down because he's, his, his body is expelling the, the profound fear. It's essentially an enormous feeling of unbridled fear that can't be coped with or assuaged psychologically. And he lives with this from that point onwards. He discovers a new identity for himself. He does. Uh, partly, I think that's the aristocratic world that he then starts to move within after he is treated uh, on the Scottish borders in a hospital called Lennel. And he um, ends up moving. It's, it's a bit of a talented Mr. Ripley story, if you've ever seen that film. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Mixed in with a bit of Brideshead Revisited because he ends up uh, really mixing in the, the highest elite levels of British society as a weird result of, of being profoundly shell-shocked and disturbed. And I think he adopts a First Nations, of course, they wouldn't use those terms at the time, but he tells everyone he's an Iroquois because he's so messed up that his sense of self inside isn't matching the outside at all, that it's, it's not a seamless merge at all. He's, he's lost it on several levels and he's reinventing the self on a profound scale. He calls himself Toronto Pruitt. Yeah, that was his uh, combat name. Because, you know, people get names in the trenches and he was called uh, Toronto because he was from Toronto. 
you got to remember how exotic Canadians, I mean, they still are, but, you know, <laughs> how exotic a Canadian was uh, to Europeans at the time. They, they thought that all Canadians were um, Indigenous people and were extremely bizarre and strange. And there's a sad dimension of that, that uh, some First Nations people were were beaten by the Germans to see if they felt pain. And, you know, that there's there's a real negative to it. But also they were extremely exotic just in the streets of France and, and, and Britain. Now, he goes to Oxford first. Am I, am I reading you correctly? He winds up at Oxford as he's demobilized? Well, he falls in with and, and falls, becomes the love interest of Siegfried Sassoon, the aristocratic uh, poet who's really very famous. Uh, and Sassoon, it's hard to imagine, but he's uh, of that aristocratic ilk where his family are Rothschild level of wealth, and he doesn't really need to work at all uh, going forward. And he can afford to have protégés and artistic types that he cultivates, and he did did that with a series of people. And Pruitt was his post-war. Before that, he'd he'd been uh, close to and intimate with uh, not not sexually necessarily but intimate with Wilfred Owen yes so Pruitt was uh, in, in some senses a replacement for for Owen and his affections and Sassoon uh, as well as Ottoline Morel another aristocratic acquaintance they pay for Oxford they pay for Oxford but he doesn't stay there for very long he comes back to Toronto He's forced to repatriate mm. and hates it. Oh, he hates it. He hates he it. <laughs> hates Canada. He sees it full of what he calls veneered barbarians and people who are just obsessed with consumerism and and getting by. And he sees the loss of, of the life that he thought he was fighting for, you know, mm-hmm. even right down to the loss of porches and, and, and front stoops in front of people's houses. And he sees the industrialization of the land, the cutting down of the bush. And he's really, he's appalled by what Canada's become and what he's fought for. And so he returns to the UK? As quick as he possibly can. As quick as he could. <laughs> So this is where your book introduces us to a whole variety of of compelling English characters, I have to say. Let's start with this Dr. Rivers, uh, who is initially, um, I guess, assigned to help Toronto Pruitt with his shell shock, as we call it. Well, we don't know for sure that he treated Pruitt, but he certainly treated Sassoon, and they were in the same orbit. And he did a lot of treating people formally and informally, because Pruitt's dear friend Robert Graves was also treated by Rivers. And I find it fascinating because Rivers was perpetuating one sort of very respected anthropological moonshine, primitivism, the idea that primitives in inverted commas were somehow lesser and mentally inferior. And Pruitt was perpetuating another sort of primitivism, the idea, the delusion that he was an indigenous person and had all the kind of noble savage attributes right down to being enormously attractive. Uh, So it's two types of moonshine clashing, which I found really interesting. And of course, there's a a seam of homosexuality driving all of this because as soon as homosexual, Rivers is homosexual. And Pruitt is, I guess, 
pansexual or of ambivalent sexuality. So it's not really clear whether rivers actually had an impact on Pruitt. It's just part of the environment in which Pruitt is thrown in the early in the early 1920s. Well, Rivers has a massive impact on Sassoon, and Sassoon and Pruitt are very close at this time. Sassoon said that Rivers, as a psychologist, was capable of what he said, lighting fires in the forest of the mind. <laughs> so amongst all the trauma, the pain, the suffering, the overwhelming fear, Rivers was able to somehow reach these men, uh, whatever the kind of architecture of philosophy behind it, he was certainly able to do it. And this is when Pruitt is really um, deeply involved in his poetry. Oh yes, Pruitt's writing various poems about uh, really the nature of trauma, what what happens to you when you are have to become inured to violence and when you have to damp down and cope with fear on an unprecedented scale. And that's one of the most interesting things about Pruitt is that he knew that he wouldn't be the John McRae. He wasn't writing a propaganda poem that could be used or there wasn't a simple symbol like the poppy. He was writing about what it means to to cope with violence and keep fighting. I, I see them both as equally patriotic. In fact, in many ways, Pruitt's more so because he fights again in the Second World War when he knows what it's like. Unbelievable. Now, then there's another character that you dwell on in your book, and that's the, the very enticing Ottoline Morel. What makes her so important in this story? What a woman. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> she is called by Lytton Strachey, the critic and writer. He wrote Eminent Victorians. He calls her the daughter of a thousand earls. And she really is. She's from the Cavendish family. You know, she's from one of the great British families of wealth. And she has this long aquiline nose and she's tall and like a thoroughbred and in her ways and uh, this remarkable accent. And she has a great deal of sex with Pruitt, if uh, she can, although he quite, can't quite fulfil her. It's thought that she was also having an affair with Herbert Asquith, who'd taken Britain to war in the first place. Uh, also, pretty much you name it, all the people who frequented her house, uh, Garsington Manor. And she's fascinating for that reason, because she's rich enough to do precisely whatever she likes and to surround herself with the most talented, attractive and fascinating people she can find. She's, I mean, I, I was not aware of Ottoline Pruitt, and I think that, you know, she just walked out of Downton Abbey. Uh, she should, well, yes. <laughs> An edgy Downton Abbey. I think she'd wipe the floor with a lot of Downton Abbey. <laughs> She's seen them as upstarts, has been. She's the one character that's missing. I mean, the 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 the, the, the um, I mean, the framework is there. Yeah, Maggie Smith tries, but she's no Adeline Morel. I mean, oh really? There's there's absolutely no no transgressive boundary crossing person like Adeline. <laughs> Let's return to this adoption of an Indian persona. You draw a parallel. Uh, between Toronto Pruitt and Longlance and Grey Owl, what do you think prompted Pruitt to to take this turn? What what, what was the intention of people like Archie Bellaney or or Toronto Pruitt or uh, Longlance? Well, what, what's what's going on in in their minds? They're all veterans. They're all people who fought, and they've seen heavy combat. 
And on one level, all the tram lines that keep identity in place for them have lost meaning. So you could look at Longlance as being the person of the 20s, Grey Owl more of the 30s. They're both people who found themselves the underdog and used identity, played with identity to get into access to people and into roles and media roles, really, and to express themselves in a literary sense in ways that they couldn't have done otherwise. And to get access to people um, and and context and fame, you know, they, they, they meet royalty, they do things that you just could never have done otherwise. Pruitt, you should remember, grows up uh, in a world where he could have well have been exposed to Indigenous role models, people like Tom Longboat, uh, Pauline Johnson uh, and, and others. You know, he, he could have fought alongside, I list quite a few, uh, I mean, the best sniper of the First World War was Indigenous. So he could well have had heroes and uh, in his traumatised state decided that he'd rather be in their more coherent cultural context than what seemed to him a world gone mad. It was more than just a, a commercial gimmick for them, do you think? Um, you know, we, we all know about Grey Owl and Archie Archibald Bellaney's um, faking. We, today we would call it cultural appropriation uh, of the of the worst kind. I mean, they 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 pretended that they were indigenous people, and um, you know, sold books on that basis. I mean, in, in case of Longlance and in the case of uh, of Bellaney, less so with with Pruitt. It wasn't that kind of success. Um, but it's interesting to note that out of this is 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 this is this I'm not going to call it a trend, but there's this this, this similarity of experience with these three very Anglo uh, characters adopting indigenous indigenous persona. What role do you think Pruitt played in the evolution of Anglo American thinking? What, what was what's the importance of Pruitt in that regard? I call him the poet of trauma, and I don't think any other literary voice is, is dealing with what it means to suffer trauma and how you can heal yourself from profound fear. So that's I consider that his primary importance. And also he gives he corresponded with some of the most well known and, and significant people of the early twentieth century. So uh, there's I mean there's a reason why the cover of my book has a lovely painting by Dorothy Brett, because not only was he the subject of sexual attraction for a lot of these people, but they were also inspired by him. And, and he, he writes, he's published by Virginia Woolf, and he's published in the Georgian Anthology of Poetry. I mean, at the time, even Sassoon thought that Pruitt would be a bigger force within the literary world. But if you want me to speak about the imposter issue, I can talk about that as well, because... He has a, a place within that narrative. And again, it's important not to apply the standards of the present to the past. Because take, for example, Grey Owl. Uh, no one Indigenous decried Grey Owl, even though it was obvious to anyone Indigenous that he was faking it. Why? Probably because he was saying things that needed to be said from an Indigenous point of view. He's the first kind of deep ecologist that we have, and he has a global media uh, platform to say that deep ecology message. So 
Grail, I consider someone who did much more good than harm. You know, cultural appropriation is a different thing in the 21st century than maybe it was when Grail did it. Of course, they're all veterans. They're all messed up and they've all fought. And I think and a lot of them, too, are alcoholics. So that's a key thing. So through the 1920s, Pruitt is slowly... I'm going to say is slowly recovering, but we know he never really recovers, right? I mean, he'll you, you don't you don't survive shell shock. It always it's always with you. We call it post traumatic stress syndrome today, but uh, I mean, I, I'm assuming that he never overcomes the deep trauma of of his first World War experience. But he gets involved in other things. I mean, he he survives in the 1920s. He gets he goes back into farming. He he goes back to his the childhood environment of farming. He, he like Gray Owl, he writes a great deal about the environment. He starts to talk about environmental protection. Is this, is this an important part of his post-war experience? He's a writer. He's a remarkable writer. So once again, how ahead of his time is that? Mm, he, yes. he could see that the industrialization processes that created gassing in the First World War were also going to feed an enormous industrialization of food production, and that would bring terribly important changes in the land. He ends up working at Oxford at a institute that helps bring in the first combine harvesters, and he, he goes to, he's funded to go to Canada to, to bring that knowledge of mass farming over to Britain. So he's very much aware as a poet of how this is going to change communities. It's going to change how we relate to land, to soil. And he's thinking about soil and air and water and how we feed ourselves and that balance. Hundred year, over 100 years ago, issues that we're only dealing with now. Interestingly, now we're also in a period of rearmament. I think he has lessons to teach us um, about mass conflict and about what technology uh, and change does to us all that are, are only, we're only really ready to hear them now. Will he be farming for the rest of his life or associated with farming for the rest of his life? He does experimental farming, trying to create new, better breeds of rice and grain and so on. And then he becomes the editor very successfully of a kind of country life type magazine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it does, again, ahead of his time stuff, like bringing out readers' recipes, farmhouse cooking, and all of this stuff. Uh, but he's a bit of a wild child. You'll probably have worked out by now, you know, from his many years living with Ottoline in the stately home and his... Uh, sexual lack of lane discipline and so on. He's a snuff-taking wild child drinker. <laughs> he, does, he does get married twice, if I, again, if I'm reading you correctly. Yes, and abandons the, the, the one child, Jane, and, and you know, there's a second child whom I knew well, uh, the late Bill Pruitt. Um, he, he really is a 1960s person in the 20s, I, I think. Yes. But he ends up um, finally fighting again in the Second World War and uh, dies with a whiskey glass in his hand. <laughs> now, Pruitt will be recognized as a poet, and he has a place in the anthologies of the poetry of the First World War. Earlier this year, in 2021, you posted on the Champlain Society's uh, findings, our, our little blog, one of his poems called Card Game 
What do you think makes this work so enticing? Card game. I like it because it talks about the carapace of seeming unfeelingness that you have to adopt in circumstances of profound violence. So in or, essentially the poem talks about how men are playing cards in the trenches. There's a massive explosion. Many people die. They go mop it all up and come back and pick up the card game just where they left. And the poem, like a Hemingway a piece of work encourages you to imagine what mental processes have to be in place for you to be able to do that. Uh, Hemingway famously wrote uh, the top 10% of meaning in his work. Pruitt does the same, again, very ahead of his time. Mm. And that's part of a series of poems about how you can cope with circumstances of profound violence. Can I read it? Sure thing. Hearing the whine and crash, we hastened out and found a few poor men lying about. I put my hand in the breast of the first met. His heart thumped, stopped, and I drew, my hand out wet. Another. He seemed a boy, rolled in the mud, screaming, My legs, my legs! And he poured out his blood. We bandaged the rest and went in and started again at our cards where we had been. It's, it's direct, isn't it? It's, it's direct, it's profound, it's horrific, and yet it's routine. It's part of the magic of Toronto Pruitt, is it not? I think so. He, he, he said, I don't write to the cant of the present age. Uh, he knew he wouldn't be popular. No one wanted to hear this. It's not about poppies. You <laughs> it's know. not about poppies. No, <laughs> it, it's really about, about what it means to be a patriot in a different way, to do the job and somehow psychologically survive. You discuss the uh, the uh, the poem in, in your book, but uh, I, I also want to draw attention to our listeners uh, to the wonderful little collection by Joel Bates. Uh, it's called Canadian Poetry from World War One: An Anthology. It's published by Oxford University Press. Joel Bates. I, I want to close this interview, uh, Joy, by talking about the the classic. Champlain Society question. What were your sources? This is a remarkable book in that you you do indicate that you were able to use Pruitt's letters and notebooks. I want to hear more about those. Uh, but you also shape your book by talking about the forces that made him define his different lives. Uh, you talk about primitivism. You talk about uh, trauma. You talk about a whole variety of things. How did you go about writing this book? And and can you tell me more about the, the sources uh, about Pruitt and, and where they can be found and, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, first, I want to say uh, that Bates book is wonderful. There's a series of other scholars that I mentioned who've done uh, shorter pieces on Pruitt. I recommend them, those two, they're, they're in the preface. So, um, Source's best source was his son, who's kind enough to give me a lot of direction, including a DNA test. How did you meet him? Ah. Uh, well, Patrice, I'm the type of woman meets people. That's got to be true. <laughs> I, I did a lot of uh, driving around, knocking on doors, you know, just, just being nice people. They, they often want to help you uh, if you are sensitive to what... You're, not, you're knocking on doors saying, do you know Frank Pruitt? <laughs> well, there's a lot of ways to knock on doors, you know. <laughs> but I mean, 
he taught me a lot about how suffering is passed on through the generations. That's the main lesson I learned. Yes. He was a very old man when we met. Uh, also, there was a trove of Pruitt stuff that hadn't been looked at in the National Archives in Scotland. And then it was a question of, because Pruitt wrote to so many people, people mention him from, you know, W.B. Yeats, D.H. Lawrence, Mark Gertler, the painter, Dorothy Brett, uh, you know, uh, everyone who was anyone was hanging. He goes to parties with Charlie Chaplin, for goodness sake. Yeah. He's, he's known by everyone. So it took me about 10 years, along with uh, the rest of my life, attempting to happen all, all around it. And I, I'm one of these writers, I need to go to the place I went to where he was treated and you know you feel the balustrades you actually be I went to his grave so I'm a real believer in going and physically taking on the presence of the place oh and your book reveals that your book shows a great sensitivity the way you describe did I, am I saying it correctly the Linnell Auxiliary Hospital yeah where he was being treated that's in Scotland is it Yes, it's near Coldstream, you know, the Coldstream Guards, it's, it's on the borders. And of course, he seduces the owner of that house, Clemmy, another arist aristocrat. This is a, a big theme. This is why I think media people are so like the Pruitt story, because he was just so good looking to both sides. <laughs> he was. And, you know, he, he really opened doors, I can tell you, with his looks. You know, and, and one aristocrat passes him on to another um, and he goes from one country house and, and well. But I have to say, intellectually, I wanted to say something about primitivism using the Pruitt story. Intellectually, I wanted to talk about the fact that we're always harking back to some imagined past to help us cope with the present. And I saw Pruitt as a brilliant example of that. And so there's this mixture of trauma plus primitivism, this this desire we all have for some halcyon, perfect, often indigenous or somehow other past to help us cope. Mm -hmm. How does Pruitt fit with your past books? Um, and and clearly, your very wide-ranging interests. I, I see that you're actually working on uh, a book on Richard Nixon's impact on environmental policy. Have I read that correctly? Correct. How does Pruitt fit with with the rest of the things? I mean, you're 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 obviously uh, British. Steady on. Oh. <laughs> I'm from Northern Ireland. Yeah, I have a British passport. I'll give you that. But you, I mean, you have a, a, a remarkable interest in things that are of Canada's indigeneity. Uh, you're very interested in environmental policy you're interested in the intersection between those two things is this is this what uh, sort of fed partly your your interest in Pruitt does he fit he he really fits in that continuity I suppose the guiding theme with everything I do is it's to do with indigeneity and he was a great intrigue of mine because he was listed for a long time as being indigenous and and the more I looked into him it was like a detective thing you find that he wasn't at all but probably I'm a bad example for young scholars because I do follow my nose you know normally academics write on one thing like the first world war and that's it whereas I tend to write whatever is fascinating me I mean, the, the, the book I'm actually finishing right now is on Canada's Green Challenge and what Canadians are going to have to, what, what mental architecture they're going to need in order to cope with 
climate change and and what difficulties persist in terms of geopolitics and being a mining nation. So I, I am attracted to Canada. Half my family are Canadian, but it's Canada is fascinating because I think the 21st century, is, uh, Canada is just going to keep growing in global significance. Is there more work to do on Pruitt? Um, Either fiction or nonfiction? I think someone's... Someone's going to make a movie, I think, or someone's going to make it. I've had TV show people talking to me. I've There's someone called, yes. there's a whole tranche of people I don't understand, like story developers, whatever they are. Yes. And uh, it, it's not going to be me, I doubt, but I'm I'm really delighted. I think it, it cries out to be a movie or a TV show or a series or something because it's just a cracking good story. It really is. Well, I think that with Audeline Morale involved, how could it fail? How could it feel? <laughs> Joy Porter, thank you so much for being my guest today and uh, for your wonderful book. Thank you, Patrice. It's been a real honor, and it's a real honor to, to help the Champlain Society in any way. That was Joy Porter, and her book is entitled Trauma, Primitivism, and the First World War, The Making of Frank Pruitt. It's published by Bloomsbury Press. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. Thanks also to our growing list of sponsors, including the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, Miguel Queen's University Press, and the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. There's a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast. Please go to champlainsociety.ca to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society is a volunteer organization that receives no government support for its operations, which always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on August 17th, 2021 by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. <music>